0: Welcome to this episode of Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast, with me, Ken MacDonald, former director of public prosecutions and barrister at Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen, also
1: a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in public law, crime and human rights law. So this week, Ken and I are really delighted to welcome to the Double Jeopardy studio, a brilliant lawyer, and in my view, the outstanding public and constitutional law advocate of my generation, David Panic, King's Counsel, also known as crossbench member of the House of Lords, Lord Panic, King's Counsel. And for good measure, David has also been a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, since 1978, and uh, done many other distinguished things. David's list of memorable law-changing cases is far too long to go through in a 40 or 50-minute podcast. To non-lawyers, he's probably best known for his role as lead advocate for Gina Miller in her landmark victory before the Supreme Court in 2019 in the prorogation case. In that ruling, the Supreme Court held unanimously that the decision of the Johnson government to prorogue or suspend Parliament solely to reduce the time available for scrutiny of Brexit at a time when such scrutiny was crucial to holding the government, was unlawful. Uh, He'd previously acted for Gina Miller in the 2017 challenge about the power of the government to use the prerogative to trigger Article 50. More recently, in perhaps a delicious irony, David was instructed by the former Prime Minister, Johnson, in relation to the procedure to be adopted by the Commons Privilege Committee concerning allegations that Mr Johnson had misled Parliament over the Partygate issue. He's also recently appeared for the Home Secretary in the judicial review proceedings concerning the Rwanda Asylum Policy. That litigation continues, and obviously David can't talk about either of those live cases.
2: But there's plenty we can discuss. So welcome to Double Jeopardy, David. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Ken. Great pleasure to be on Double Jeopardy. Yes, yeah, it's, re- it's very good to see you, David. I have to tell you about 30 years ago when my son was about eight or nine,
0: I picked him up from a friend's house in Wilson and the friend's dad came to the door and we fell into conversation. And he said to me, oh, I-, I knew someone at primary school who went on to become a barrister, but I haven't seen him since primary school. He said he was called David Panic and he was the cleverest boy in the class. And I said, yeah, well, he still is. So, uh,
2: pleasure to have you, David, as the cleverest boy in the class. I don't think that's libelous. I was thinking maybe I'd have to go speak to David Sherborne <laughs> about suing you, but I, I don't think on that bit I will. You probably
1: can't afford him, David.
2: I, I think he meant it sincerely.
0: Well, look, that's, that's enough uh,
1: far too much flattery. Um, David, this is not... Desert Island Discs, but we do uh, like to begin uh, these podcasts um, with a bit of personal stuff. So uh, can I just ask you a few things about your upbringing, where you were born, what inspired you to become a lawyer, your family background, that kind of thing? Yeah,
2: well, I had no lawyers in my family, plenty of argumentative relations. Uh, I was born in Frindsbury Park, hence my support for Arsenal Football Club. Uh, my parents moved to my parents moved to Ilford in Essex in 1963. Uh, my great grandparents were Jewish refugees from Poland from Russia at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, my father ran a shoe shop in Romford Market. Uh, his motto was, "If you, if you don't like them, don't have them." I've, uh, <laughs> I've tried to be more user-friendly. I've tried to be more user friendly. Uh, at the bar. My mother was a school secretary. Um, I had a very, very happy upbringing. My parents uh, were devoted parents. They just wanted the best for their children. My sister and I had a very happy childhood.
1: Another, another question that we often ask um, is, is in terms of what inspired you to become a lawyer. Were there any particular TV programs that you watched in the 60s or 70s growing up that, that influenced you to become a lawyer?
2: Well, certainly in the 60s, I, I would watch Perry Mason, oh, yeah. uh, Raymond Burr, as the great defense lawyer who won every case, <laughs> I think, apart from one, uh, which he won on appeal. There's not been a defense lawyer that, like that since, since um, uh, either of you. Um, but I used to watch those. I thought that was fascinating. I debated at school i used to go and this is a real confession i used to go from school in the school holidays to the old bailey and um and and, and watch trials it's a bit pathetic but that's what i did and i decided that without well, i i did I the same that. thing actually yeah great life i thought later of course i watched l.a law rumpole of the bailey the great ali McBeal, and the magnificent Boston legal all of them uh, great. And by comparison, of course, with those epic legal dramas, uh, Meghan Markle in Suits is distinctly forced. Vision.
0: I have to agree about that. I didn't see many of them. They certainly didn't match up to some of the programmes um, that you've mentioned. But did you, you, you studied law at university, David?
2: Yes, I did. I studied law at Hartford College, Oxford. I was enormously fortunate that my tutor was Roy Stewart. Uh, and Roy Stewart was one of the decreasing number of tutors at Oxford who were simply concerned to advance the welfare of their students to teach. Uh, He he didn't produce very much by way of uh, writing. I think he had one article in the modern law review but he was a magnificent tutor and he encouraged, inspired, intimidated his pupils to do well and I owe him a great deal. They were a real they were a real generation
0: weren't they those those academics who who were focused more on teaching than research. There was one at, at my college as well, what the wonderful Geoffrey
2: Hackney. Yeah, well I was taught by Geoffrey. Geoffrey Hackney taught me uh, land law or was it land Rome, law taught, or right? Roman law. He teaches Roman law a lot, but he but he's one of those people who's the
0: just the most wonderful character with his students and and um they're, they're, all, they're all devoted to him.
2: Yeah, there's now of course an obligation on all academics to produce a certain amount of written published material. I think that's, that that ignores the fact that there are other things that uh, tutors can and, 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 and do. We,
1: we're gonna go on to some more specific questions um, a, a bit later, but can I ask you this, looking back on, on your career to date, um, some 40 years or so at the bar, You've consistently appeared um, for all sides in major um, political constitutional law disputes. You've appeared for government departments, for individuals in human rights law cases, and you, like me, appeared many times before Tom Bingham, Lord Bingham, who no doubt um, we both regard as as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, judges um, since the Second World War. And I wanted to ask you, um, based on Lord Bingham's famous book, the rule of law in which he set out some eight principles of the rule of law, let me just go through them for people who may not be familiar with them. The law must be accessible and so far as possible intelligible, clear and predictable. Two, questions of legal right and liability should ordinarily be resolved by application of the law and not the exercise of discretion. Three, the laws of the land should apply equally to all, save to the extent that objective differences justify differentiation. Four, Ministers and public officers at all levels must exercise the powers conferred on them in good faith, fairly, for the purpose for which the powers were conferred, without exceeding the limits of such powers, and not unreasonably. Five, the law must afford adequate protection of fundamental human rights. Six, means must be provided for resolving, without prohibitive cost or inordinate delay, bona fide civil disputes, which the parties themselves are unable to resolve. Seven, the adjudicative procedures provided by the state should be fair, and finally, eight, the rule of law requires compliance by the state with its obligations in international law, as in national law. Now, we've debated with a number of our guests a variety of, of combinations of those issues. What, what's your view, having acted on both sides? about where we are in rule of
2: law terms in in Britain? Uh, Well, applying Lord Bingham's principles, and I share your view, of course, about Lord Bingham and his preeminence, I think we're still doing rather well for rule of law purposes, certainly by comparison with the vast majority of countries in the world. Uh, Ministers, by and large, act in good faith. They're certainly not corrupt. Uh, Our judges are independent. Basic human rights are guaranteed. Uh, By and large, we can say whatever we like. We can worship whatever god we believe in uh, or or none. Uh, People don't disappear into state custody only for their bodies to be found in a ditch months later. And by and large, we comply with our international obligations. And when we don't, that is exposed and vilified, and rightly so. That's not to say there are not real problems, because there are, but they need to be kept in perspective. Uh, There are, uh, to apply some of the principles, Tim, that you mentioned, there are serious problems uh, about delays in court hearings, civil and and criminal, inadequate legal aid rates for lawyers, uh, poor coverage for civil legal aid, too many malevolent police officers, uh, who've been shielded by their colleagues, and there's a whole range of bills before Parliament, some of which we might, we might want to discuss, um, which threaten to damage law, and breach but um, basic rights. But my point is, I think we do need to keep all of that in perspective. Do you think, David, that there's, a, there's been a, 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 a rather more
0: modern trend, which which I would 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 perceive as having started perhaps during the early New Labour years when when the government was very concerned, the Blair government was very concerned to demonstrate that it was tough on crime and tough on national security and so on. A, a, a trend of of political attacks on judges that we, we didn't really see in such a coordinated way from governments until the late 1990s and w- w- seemed to carry on during the Labour years and then uh, again during the Coalition years. So the sort of things I'm thinking of are some of the black blanket attacks on judges. The Daily, the famous Daily Mail front page enemies of the people. Failure of the then Lord Chancellor Liz, Liz Truss to protect the judges in the face of that. I mean that is a slightly concerning modern trend, isn't it? And it's a sort of anti-rule of law trend because it is a if it's an attack on the judges, it's an attack on the rule of law and, and basic principles that the state had
2: adhered to for, for, for in the years before that. Is, that? is that something that concerns you? No, it concerns me very much. I think your analysis is absolutely right. I mean, if you go back before New Labour, you go back to the time of Margaret Thatcher. For all her faults and her perceived faults, she was very strongly of the view and said so that's what the judges decided had to be accepted you could appeal if you didn't like the judgment but you had to accept the judgment and she made that very clear in relation to the gchq uh, uh, case um, the, the, the encouraging thing is that when these criticisms by ministers of judges occur they are called out uh, you mentioned new labor of course there was the famous statement wasn't there by lord chancellor derry Irvine? Uh, criticising the Home Secretary, David Blunkett. He said something to the effect that if you win in court, you don't cheer, and if you lose, you don't boo. You accept the the results. And I fear there is an increasing tendency by politicians on all sides, not just here, but in other countries as well, uh, to treat the judiciary as just another element of the political system which can be opposed... Uh, it can be evaded, uh, it can be condemned. Uh, I would add one example to those that you you gave, Ken, that uh, when the European Court of Human Rights said that the absolute ban on prisoners voting was a breach of the European Convention on Human Rights, the Prime Minister David Cameron stood up in the House of Commons and said the judgment made him feel physically sick Uh, Yes, I remember. Extraordinary statement. So, yes, you're right. Uh, I'm encouraged, however, by the fact that when these statements occur, and Liz Truss's um, statement or failure to, to... Comment as as Lord Chancellor on enemies of the people until very late in the day. When that occurs, um, they are criticised. The politicians are widely criticised, not just by the legal community, but by um, others in, in 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 the in the wider community. Yeah, someone
0: said that the the Prime Minister perhaps needed to develop a stronger stomach. But you, but you, I think you are right. I think the the the, the, the quite. Um, spirited response that meets these sorts of attacks is is, is encouraging and, and, and I agree with you about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, what is worrying, of course, is that although the three of us would take that view, and I think most people in the legal community would take that view, I'm afraid these attacks uh, are, are they, they threaten to play well in the wider community. I mean, they're vote winners, that's why politicians say them and they need to recognize politicians on all sides. That there are standards that they need to respect, even if um, what they say can win them votes.
1: Before we go on um, to ask uh, about the the current bills, the most controversial bills that are that are being um, debated um, in the Commons and the Lords. Can I, and it's linked to the whole question of attacks on the judges, did you ever think yourself about becoming a full-time judge? I know you were once, I think you were a recorder and a Deputy High Court judge, but but obviously I'm assuming now you've a, a, a career on the bench,
2: isn't it? No, I've given all that up. I've given all that up. I sat as a recorder and I sat as a Deputy High Court judge because I thought, well, maybe I'll want to be a judge when I'm a big boy when I grow up. But um, I quickly decided it wasn't for me. I don't have the patience. And I would give up an awful lot if you're a high court judge still. You have to restrain yourself. And I was fortunate enough, as you said before, to um, become a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. And that satisfies my, my wish to do something other than argue people's cases. So no.
1: Let's move on to um something you, you that, that you've hinted at, um, in terms of the of the current um crop of legislation that's under active consideration in the laws and therefore both both of you, Ken and David, are uh actively involved and engaged um in this uh, process and, and the main ones I think are the Bill of Rights Bill. Well of course that's still to have second reading it's not quite clear if that's going to go forward but it's still sort of on the horizon um that's dominic raab's proposal to repeal the human rights act and replace it with a domestic british bill of rights but under active consideration is of course the retained eu law bill which is proposing by the end of this year in effect to um, review or repeal some 4,000 uh, items of, of retained EU law. Then there's the strikes minimum service levels bill, which is going to potentially introduce you know, draconian consequences of pers- people involved in public services who, who go on strike uh, and fail to maintain minimum service levels. There's the national security bill. And then there's the continuing saga of the Northern Ireland protocol and, and how that is going to be resolved. Um, Is there a common theme, do you think, David, to to all of of these pieces of legislation?
2: Well, there are common themes. I mean, the first of them is the wish of the government to give ever increasing powers to ministers to act by delegated legislation. Uh, This has long been a problem, but uh, the problem has got far worse in the last couple of years. And what ministers like to do is to confer upon themselves powers to repeal or amend primary legislation uh, by so-called Henry VIII uh, clauses. And the retained EU law bill, which you mentioned, Tim, is a very good example of that. Ministers will decide which of our current EU laws that have been, uh, 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 been handed over after we left the EU, which of them will continue to be law. So um, we've taken back control from Europe, the slogan that the um, the Brexiteers uh, emphasise, but taking back control has, been, has become taking back control for ministers rather than parliament. The Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is another example of that. The idea that ministers will decide which parts of the protocol they wish to uh, retain. So that's the first problem. There's a second link problem, which is the government's tendency to produce skeleton bills. So when we debate matters in Parliament, we don't actually know how they're going to be applied, what they mean. And the new strikes minimum service levels bill is a very good example of that. It's in purely skeletal form. And of course, once ministers produce regulations, to implement these powers, uh, Parliament has very little opportunity properly to debate them. You can't propose amendments to regulations. You either accept it or, or you don't. And, and the debates are, are, are much shorter. So it's very unsatisfactory. Uh, so that's the second tendency. The third tendency is ministers like to give themselves extremely broad powers, which will inevitably have um, a chilling, undesirable effect on, on rights. Dominic Raab's bill is a very good example of that. Uh, and and it, it's so um, defective that it probably won't have a second reading. Um, but there are other examples of, of that. I, I spoke recently in the House of Lords on the National Security Bill. And I spoke in particular on a bizarre proposal by the government that if you've been convicted of terrorism in the past, which might just involve daubing graffiti on a wall, and even if you've received a non-custodial sentence or a short custodial sentence, you will thereafter be barred from eligibility for civil legal aid. So if you're- You become an outlaw in effect. Yeah, you're an outlaw. So if a woman who's got a conviction for terrorism uh, says that she's the victim of domestic abuse, she's homeless, she will be excluded from civil legal aid. And, of course, we don't do this for rapists, for murderers, for paedophiles. So it's it's a bizarre proposal, um, and I'm afraid it's an example of the sort of gesture legislation that we sometimes get, which no doubt wins votes, but really it makes no sense uh, whatsoever. So Ken and I and other peers, particularly legal peers, have plenty of work to do.
0: Yeah, this is the most atrocious. I have to say this is the most atrocious clause that I've seen in a bill in my 12 years um, in the Lords. It's just extraordinary. And in in a meeting of the crossbench peers that was being addressed by the relevant ministers, I put the very example that you've just mentioned, David, of a a woman facing an abusive partner um, and asked the minister whether it was right that such a woman wouldn't get legal aid. And there was a kind of pause and he looked at his advisor, who I thought in a rather embarrassed way said yes. And there was a stunned silence in the room. I mean, I think it is, is a dreadful clause. But these, these, these points you've mentioned are all rule of law issues, aren't they? The over-delegation of powers, the lack of scrutiny of this material in the commons, the broad, broad powers which are given to ministers, skeleton bills. Th- these are all ways it seems to me of defeating proper parliamentary scrutiny and so it's it's really important to push back on them in the Lords because there's not sufficient pushback it
2: seems to me uh, in the Commons. Well there's none. I mean what is so extraordinary about many of the issues that we debate in the Lords and indeed it's the justification for the bizarre institution that is the House of Lords, it is that the House of Commons doesn't have time, doesn't have the inclination to address matters of this sort. And we regularly get bills that come to the Lords where there's been little, if any, debate on what I think are fundamental issues, as you say, issues of the rule of law. And um, I, for my part, and I think you're the same, Ken, I mean, we don't focus in the Lords on addressing major issues of government, economic and social policy. That's really not for us in, in the laws. But our task, which I think we, we perform as a as a house rather well, is to draw attention to um, issues that are raised by legislation, incidentally raised by legislation, which have been missed or covered up and which need exposure and debate. And and the record of the House of Lords in in getting amendments to government bills on this sort of issue is pretty good. I mean, you're both
1: um, crossbench uh, members of the House of Lords. What's your sense of um, how members, particularly on the Conservative benches, feel about the the issues
2: that, that we've just been discussing? Some of them are very concerned about them. What they do, they they sometimes, if they're really provoked, they will vote with the amendment that we put forward. More often, they just go home early, and they uh, they, they 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 don't vote, and that's fine, because uh, if Labour support amendment, and if the Liberal Democrats support an amendment, and most of the crossbenchers support an amendment, we will win in the. Uh, In the House of Lords, of course, it then goes back to the Commons, and regrettably, uh, sometimes it's just the the party whip is imposed. Yeah, I think one of the important features of the House of Lords that people don't always
0: understand is that it's the whipping operation there is much less effective than the Commons, and people will tend to vote with their conscience more. And it's very, very important that when it comes to the crunch seems to me to be very important when it comes to the crunch we may talk about this later when we're talking about reform of the house of lords very important that the government doesn't have a natural majority Um, that seems to me to be important in a scrutinizing chamber and i think I, i agree with you david i think there are plenty of people on the tory benches who are very uneasy um, about this sort of stuff.
1: David, uh, before we move on to another topic, what's your view? I mean, you're, uh, implicit in some of what you've said is obviously a, a a concern about the processes um, of the House of Lords. I mean, what's your view about about abolishing the unelected House of Lords?
2: Well, I think that would be a retrograde, retrograde step. Um, there is plainly a democratic deficit here. You have Um, a chamber of the legislature which is not elected Uh, i'll leave aside the bizarre arrangement of electing replacements for hereditary peers but apart from that we're not elected Um, but we do good work Uh, the house of Lords on any subject contains a number of experts it also contains people who think they're experts but are are, are not Um, and we therefore are able to address the details of legislative proposals and raise rule of law considerations in a way that the House of Commons either does not have the expertise to, or doesn't have the time to, or for political reasons, doesn't have the inclination to. And that is a very, very valuable function. And the vast majority, well over 90% of the amendments to legislation that are made in the House of Lords are accepted by the House of Commons. It's very rare for our amendments uh, then to be rejected by the Commons. And if they are, we may have another go at asking the House of Commons to think again, uh, as the language puts it, on what is quaintly known as ping-pong. But if the House of Commons doesn't agree with us, well, we almost always, very, very rare indeed, for the House of Lords not to give way. And that's right, because they're elected and we're not. And it's very difficult to think of an alternative arrangement that's going to work without creating a rival chamber to the House of Commons. And I think that would be a real problem. So before I went to the House of Lords, I didn't appreciate, I'm sure many people don't appreciate, the value of the work that is done and the extent to which the legislation that comes to the House of Lords uh, has, in its detail, not been considered by the House of Commons. Uh, either um, in, in 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 essence or, or at all.
0: I mean, that's the that's the absolute key to this, isn't it? That the House of Lords is a, is a scrutinising chamber that examines and tries to improve bills and then sends them back to the Commons. And the the, 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 the outcome to be most feared from any reform is that it would become a poodle chamber, uh, a chamber that simply reflected the government's majority in the. House of Commons. And if that happened, and if it was whipped more strictly on party lines, which it would be in that, in that situation, um, it's difficult to see how the scrutinizing function could possibly work. And I think this sense in which at the end of the day, the government can't command an overall majority is what makes it work. I mean, we can all imagine reforms, David, we could have a, we should have a maximum number. Uh, maybe there should be term limits of say 15 years there should be a retirement age the the uh, appointments commission should be allowed to veto uh, political appointments if they're of non-suitable people and you might even say that during the course of any parliament uh, people appointed to the house of lords should be appointed in proportion to the proportion of votes cast um, at the previous election and that would introduce some element of democratic accountability, indirect though it would be. But it, it seems to me that simple elections would result in a chamber that became wholly party political. Uh, and then we'd simply lose this, the, the value of all this scrutiny that takes place. I mean, the House of Lords operates these days as a main and primary defender of, of the rule of law. And, and, and I think that the danger is
2: that that would be lost. I agree with your list, Ken. I would add to that Uh, removal of the hereditaries, it seems to me completely indefensible that we still have a system that where one of the 92 hereditaries, Tony Blair's government in 1999 retained uh, 92 hereditaries sitting in the House of Lords. When one of them dies, we have these by-elections. i do away with that. And of your list, I think the most egregious vice in the House of Lords at the moment uh, is the patronage of the Prime Minister, the idea that the Prime Minister has the ability to decide how many people are going to be appointed, and who they are on on the Conservative side now, being, being the government, with the Appointments Commission merely having the opportunity to make recommendations that people are unsuitable, which are not binding. I mean, it's outrageous that the Prime Minister should be able to appoint to a chamber of parliament as many peers as he or she wishes.
0: Yeah I I entirely agree with that and it's 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 a real it's a real public public confidence issue.
1: Well as a as a mere commoner not for the first time surrounded by members of uh, the House of Lords I can only humbly agree with you both on that <laughs> one. <laughs> can we move on David? To a different topic. In one of our earliest episodes of Double Jeopardy, we had as our guest um, our mutual friend Edward Fitzgerald at King's Counsel, and, and the topic of that episode, for for listeners who want to go back, I think it's episode three, was defending very bad people. And the context for our discussion was, which was you know some months ago now, and it was sort of a few months after the invasion of. Ukraine by Russia and lots of criticism of lawyers for um, acting for Russians and so on. But we discussed with Edward um, the ethics, the politics, the pressures on lawyers um, for acting in what are seen to be unpopular causes and the public attacks which have been increasingly vocal and arguably uh, unpleasant uh, not least because the lawyers can't effectively answer back or sue for libel um, if the attacks are made in Parliament um, the, the, the question I, I suppose I'm asking you because you yourself have also been singled out for criticism for some of the clients that you have acted for w- what's your view about this do you think it's new I mean it's obviously I'm sure we all agree it's it's sinister and uh, deeply unpleasant and undermining of the rule of law. Do you think it's worse now than, than earlier years?
2: Yeah, I think it is getting worse. Uh, it's getting worse partly because of the ease with which the abuse can be directed at council. Um, in, in a number of cases, I've received very objectionable offensive abuse uh, from people, uh, for not normally anonymous people, they don't say who they are, uh, for acting for various clients. I mean, you mentioned that I, I act anybody, and I, I do, I've represented the Home Secretary and Shamima Begum. Uh, I've represented Gina Miller and Boris Johnson. And I think when I represented Gina Miller and when I represented Shamima Begum, I had very objectionable uh, um, things sent to me, uh, comments. And I, I was fortunate. I wasn't like um, uh, Gina Miller physically threatened, she received messages threatening her with rape. One, one individual was prosecuted and, and, and convicted. But I do, I do very, very strongly believe that it is the role of counsel, and I share this, I know with the two of you, and with Ed Fitzgerald, who, who you mentioned, it is our role to represent clients, whether we agree with them, we are neutral, or we find what they are said to have done uh, uh, objectionable. Um, Our role is, um, I subscribe to the principle, it was um, John Mortimer's Rumpole, who said, I defend murderers, but it doesn't mean I approve of murder. And I think that's absolutely right. Uh, The problem is that a substantial proportion of the population uh, agree with Rumpole's wife, uh, Hilda, uh, who said that's not a principle it's just a way of making money from the most terrible people uh, and i think she's wrong uh, i think the independence of the council is as fundamental to the rule of law as the independence of the judiciary um, because it's the court that decides on liability civil criminal um, uh, not the advocate and, and if we say to clients, I'm not going to argue your case in court because I don't approve of you, then that doesn't merely diminish the client's ability to find competent counsel. And that might be quite difficult if they're accused of uh, child molestation or or whatever. But it also means that when we do act for people, then the public at large think that we're doing so because we agree with them, because we sympathize with them, Uh, and we don't. We represent all sorts and I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I represent all sorts and I, I propose to continue to do so. Uh, I personally received a, a lot of criticism, some of it from politicians, for um, acting uh, for people who were threatened uh, with sanctions because of their associations with the vile President Putin. But they're entitled. to. They're entitled to have their legal rights defended as an alleged murderer or rapist. So, you know, I, I, I will continue to act for people, uh, however objectionable others may think them to be. Well, I, I
0: must say I totally agree with that. And I found some of the comments in Parliament around the time we were considering relevant legislation about lawyers representing Russians to be really objectionable and and actually pretty ignorant. I mean, like, like you, I represent people who are threatened with sanctions and family members of people who are threatened with, with sanctions. And I have no apology to make about that at all. Again, as I, as I keep saying, this is a simple rule of law issue,
2: it seems and to me. And some of the criticism came from, you may remember, a woman called Liz Truss, who was the Lord Chancellor, was the, um, the Foreign Secretary at the time. And she seemed incapable, despite having been Lord Chancellor, of understanding the rule of law implications of this
1: yeah well of course we had robert buckland um former lord chancellor on the podcast in our last episode and and he had a very distinguished honorable record of of defending judges and lawyers on precisely the issues that we've just been discussing and i i mean i think it does underline does it not that so much of this does depend on the character of the person in a position whether they're secretary for justice lord chancellor home secretary and so on and the extent to which such persons respect.
2: Well, it's for them to take a leap. It's for them to emphasise to their cabinet colleagues, uh, to the political community and to the world at large, how important this is. And there are very distinguished people on both sides of um, of, of politics, all sides of politics, who have lived up to that. People like James Mackay, um, um, Derry Irvin, uh, and you mentioned Sir Robert Buckland indeed.
0: Yeah yeah, I, yeah absolutely. Just a link to that can
1: I just ask I've always wanted to ask you this question um, you and I were involved many years ago in the Myra Hindley litigation I was being led by Ed Fitzgerald uh, we acted for Myra Hindley in her challenge to the decision of the Home Secretary Michael Howard to effectively change her sentence to mean that she would spend the rest of her life in prison when the judicial recommendation had been that she should spend 25 years and it was obviously politically inconvenient to release her and Michael Howard effectively in secret changed her sentence so the issue was can a politician interfere with a sentence it was a classic kind of rule of law um, issue and you acted uh, very honorably for uh, the Secretary of State in that litigation and I always remember we had uh, the divisional court Lord Bingham Tom Bingham presiding we lost In the Court of Appeal, we had Lord Wolfe, Harry Wolfe, presiding. We lost. In the House of Lords, um, Johan Stein, Lord Stain, a great proponent of prisoners' rights and human rights law, gave the judgment, and we lost. Um, And I always thought it was... (laughs) it was an example eventually Strasbourg said we were right but myra hindley had died by then and it was an example of a incredibly unpopular person i mean hard to think of anyone more loathed and hated and i always wondered whether it affected the outcome of the case so a little bit along the lines we've just been talking about about people sort of um, reaching a different decision because they don't like the cause or the person what, what, what did you think about that
2: well can I say first of all that I didn't always win for Michael Howard um, I acted for him in the European Court of Human Rights in the case of Thompson and Venables the young men who killed the toddler Jamie Bolger and um, I lost for the United Kingdom 17-0 and we were lucky to get nil as the as the saying goes but, but on, on Myra Hindley I have a very clear recollection in the Myra Hindley case in the divisional court, before Lord Bingham, as you said, and other judges. There was sitting in the front row of the court, in a wheelchair, sobbing throughout the proceedings, the mother of Leslie Ann Downey, who was one of the child victims, you recall, of Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. This must have been in about the year two thousand, thirty-five years after the... Uh, the crimes. Uh, I mentioned that because judges are human, uh, and so of course they're influenced by all of that. I mean, I think myself the decision was a perfectly justifiable one by by the courts, perfectly reasonable one. and indeed, when the issue was whether the Home Secretary was entitled to impose a whole life tariff, I think revulsion at the awful nature of the crimes, and they were truly awful was a, a relevant factor well I, I think you and i probably
1: won't agree about that one but we may we all move on <laughs> david um final topic and i i know from having discussed this uh, with both of you that that you and ken take a quite different views about this which hopefully will make it for an interesting discussion should legal members, in other words, lawyer members of the House of Lords, such as you two, be required to declare their foreign government clients. That is currently or recently introduced as uh, a rule in the House of Lords, and it has led, as we've discussed in earlier podcasts, to certain very prominent distinguished lawyers, former judges, former justices of the Supreme Court, taking what i understand is called temporary leave of absence whereby they they just re, sort of retire temporarily from the house of lords because they are unable or unwilling to declare their foreign government clients now i know that ken is a strongly supports this
2: rule and you don't think it's a good idea what what what's your view well i have to declare how much i've received and from which foreign governments i've received it but i don't have to declare the nature of the advice i don't have to declare what case it is. Uh, A bit of context, this was introduced because of concern that some members of the House of Lords, not lawyers, uh, were taking payments from foreign governments and then speaking for their clients uh, in debate. And as you say, the consequence has been that a number of very prominent uh, members of the House of Lords, lawyers, Lord Newberger, Lord Mance, Lord Peter Goldsmith, Um, have taken leave of absence because client confidentiality makes it very difficult to comply with the requirements. Um, I think my view uh, is that this is all unnecessary and unfortunate. Unfortunate because of its consequences. The rules fail to recognise that if I advise Ruritania or I argue a case on their behalf, I'm not on their team. I'm not keen to advance their political interests. For the reasons we previously discussed, I'm arguing their case as counsel under the cab rank rule or equivalent, uh, and I'm doing a professional job. I'm regulated by the Bar Standards uh, Board in this respect. And I think it's absurd to suggest that because I act for Ruritania in the Court of Appeal or in an arbitration, I would even begin to think of advancing their interests in the House of Lords. And if I were to speak, if I were to speak on an issue relating to Ruritania, I would in any event be obliged under the House of Lords rules to declare my interests. So I I think this is a very unfortunate rule.
0: Hmm. I mean, I I, I, I I certainly agree that the consequences have been unfortunate, and they, and they were um, foreseeable, I think, that certain um, senior lawyers would absent themselves from the House of Lords rather than have to make this declaration. But I'm afraid I think this is a public confidence issue, really, and I just think it's something we just have to accept as legislators. I don't see how you can be a member of a national legislator without declaring, if it is the case, that you're taking money from a foreign government and i don't think this is about um the fear that uh legislators would necessarily be uh promoting the interests of that foreign government in parliament i think it's simply that the public are entitled to know if legislators in their national parliament um, are being employed are being paid by foreign governments i think it's just as, as simple and as straightforward as that it's very unfortunate that uh, it has resulted in our losing uh, some people. But I'm afraid that's the price we pay for a level of
2: transparency in these matters, which I think is unavoidable. Yeah, but the transparency is there ken The transparency is there because everybody knows or can find out if they want to that I am a practising barrister. I don't conceal that. On the contrary. And so people know that when I speak in the House of Lords or when I vote... I have a large number of clients, a few of whom are foreign governments and that I treat my foreign government clients as I treat anybody else. I don't uh, represent them or their interests, I'm not affected by them or their interests when I uh, act in the House of Lords and there is a distinction that I think it's very important to maintain between your professional life as a barrister and your involvement in the house of lords and i think this rule fails to recognize the importance of the distinction
0: yeah i just i just feel that a higher level of specificity is required when 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 one's talking about about foreign states and foreign governments but i but i i I respect your view david and i can see there are two sides to this well on that on
1: that note of mutual respect um (laughs) uh, i think i think it's i think it's time to bring this discussion to an end but i have one further question And it's an important one. David, uh, your opinion, I know, does not come cheaply and your judgment is greatly valued. Um, uh, Will Arsenal win the Premier League?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, Tim, that is a more difficult question than any of those that you've lobbed at me and Ken's lobbed at me um, earlier. All I can say is I very much hope so. I very much hope so. It's our turn. It's our time. We have a great team. And the only people who can prevent us from winning the Premier League are ourselves. Provided we continue to have confidence in ourselves, we are going to triumph. What about Erling Erling Haaland? Very wise words,
0: David.
1: (laughs) David, um, thank you very much um, for that free and very wise assessment. Uh, It's been really fun talking to you. Thanks, uh, Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you very much, David. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both. Well, we hope you've enjoyed
0: this um, episode of Double Jeopardy as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, If you have, and if you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends, um, leave us a review, preferably a good one, um, and we hope to see you again very soon. Our uh, editor, as always, has been Billy Lawrence.
1: And our social media advisor is Jess Jones.